720 WGN. Hi there, it's Amy Guth, and this is the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Always grateful to you for sharing part of your Saturday afternoon with me. Lots to do on the show today. We're going to be talking a little bit about this whole... Whole Foods, Amazon thing, lots to be thinking about there, lots of shifts happening. So a lot of people are talking about that on social media this morning. Uh, But before we get to that, you know those cool subscription boxes? There seems like there's one for everything. Not long ago, I was talking about one that I tried, and it was one for hot sauce called Fuego Box. So there's a lot of cool stuff out there from makeup to baby clothes to you name it. There is a subscription box for it. But in particular, Blue Apron, we all see a lot of ads for Blue Apron. Well, they have hit a little bit of uh, some some choppy waters, let's say. So joining us now to talk about that is Gabriella Barco, who is a journalist who wrote about this, Blue Apron in particular, recently for Bloomberg. Gabriella, thanks for being with us today. Hi, thank you. How are you? Great, thank you. So, so talk us through what's going on with Blue Apron in particular and subscription boxes as a whole, because as I read through the piece that you wrote that everybody can find at Bloomberg.com, there, there an, the thing that jumps out to me very, very quickly, really, is that um, the margins that you would think would be attached to any kind of uh, tech-based sort of startup, any sort of innovation space, those profit margins are not really there in the subscription box space. Right. So right now, the hardest thing for someone like Blue Apron is a uh, path to profitability, which um, if you're a VC-backed startup like uh, Blue Apron, Birchbox, uh, any of these subscription boxes, it's uh, it's not really easy because you have all of this um, funding coming in that is basically going towards uh, what they call is marketing spend. Uh, so when you hear a Blue Apron ad on a podcast, which is very popular, or when you're getting those free first box meals, uh, that's all part of this uh, funding that goes towards their uh, uh, marketing. So what happens is uh, with Blue Apron in particular, because they IPO'd this summer, they've been obviously very closely watched by invest- their own investors and outsiders. Uh, so right now, because uh, with this month's earnings call, it turned out very obviously um, that their shares fell and um, they've had to, they actually announced that they're going to cut marketing, which just, you know, by um, logic, they it means they're going to probably end up, uh, where their revenue is probably going to end up falling next uh, quarter also. So it's sort of this cat and mouse game where, you know, you don't really have the, um, the funding for um, this anymore, to do this anymore. So what you're going to have to do is, you basically have to find a path to profitability. And because they're being hit with all of these problems, like with their, um, uh, I'm not sure if you heard, but, you know, they have these lawsuits with their um, uh, plants and, uh, you know, with the cost of shipping and all of that, it becomes, uh, yeah, it becomes really hard to turn a profit. And so what we're seeing right now with all of the, you know, because Blue Apron is such a big example of subscription boxes is that investors are basically becoming very cautious you know i talked to an investor for my story and he said right now i don't want to invest in a quote-unquote you know tech startup where you just layer this tech um angle on top of uh an already existing market for example with blaperin you're talking about billions of dollars of uh a grocery market that they're trying to disrupt which um, most of us already kind of, you know, have this all of these uh, 
sort of regiments of going to a grocery store, buying our groceries, kind of like what you guys were talking about previously. Um, so it's going to be very hard for them to convince all of their uh, customers to stay with them. So customer attention is become a really big problem for them. Right, certainly. And so when we look to something like Birchbox, which has been around a little bit longer, they're just mm-hmm. now hitting profitability, what, seven, eight years out of the gate. So is there is there a sudden kind of feeling of, oh, this takes longer to kind of slog through it? Or is it more of a, oh, there's something up with, you know, this whole uh, space mm-hmm. of subscription boxes might be in peril? Yeah, so... Birchbox is actually a perfect example because they kind of pioneered the subscription box market. You know, I mean, obviously there was the Columbia House. I mean, this was before my time, but um, they kind of did the whole tech twist on subscription boxes. And so they launched in 2010 and, you know, kept taking, um, I think they raised about $125 million a year in uh, BC funding for the past five years. And so they told me that. They basically saw the market for in, you know investing and thought, okay, we can't just keep taking money. We're going to sort of pivot to a road to profitability. So this was a cautious uh, effort by them this mm-hmm. past year. So if you see um, their numbers, they actually – the way they were able to turn the profit, people would say, is uh, they laid off about 6% of staff and – they renegotiated uh, their shipping contracts, you know, and also just did little things like even adjusted the size of the box, you know, so just logistics, um, like smaller, slightly smaller boxes. And this all kind of helped them um, cut the uh, spending a little bit and where they were able to turn a profit. So it wasn't without any effort, you know. Is this another, uh, you know, we saw this a lot with kind of the the big chain, uh, multi-purpose big box stores. Uh, we were talking mm-hmm. about this just a couple of months ago on the program about kind of when it, when, um, when a particular industry gets into that race to the bottom, that's when we start seeing hiring freezes and marketing freezes and kind of, you know, layoffs and things like that. Is there, mm-hmm. you know, is there someone who seems to be stepping out of that race to the bottom in the subscription box uh, space or are they all kind of t- tightening the belt a bit? Um, it's kind of hard to tell because it's such a new market and there's so much saturation. You know, there. Are, I mean, if you, there's like a whole website dedicated to, what subscription boxes are around and which ones are. And I just looked at the list of all the ones that shut down already that people haven't even heard of. So um, it seems to sort of rely on all of this uh, venture capitalist money that sort of, you know, obviously runs out very quickly. And then they realize, oh, we can't keep our customers around. Um, and that sort of uh, ruins your whole model, doesn't it? Sure. <laughs> if you can't keep customers. Because uh, the whole point of subscriptions is that, Investors are so attracted to it because you are supposedly keeping a customer consistently around every month, you know, paying their $10 or whatever it is, kind of like what we do with Spotify, except um, when it becomes like a replenishing uh, a model like uh, Blue Apron, where it's groceries as opposed to music, you know, which most of us probably don't mind paying $10 a month for to keep listening to our favorite music. It's not a big deal, but when it comes to things like groceries or um, beauty products, it's kind of a little bit harder because those tend to be the first ones to that for, you know, people like millennials with uh, probably not too much of a, um, a uh, disposable income sure. to keep around. So that's for me, that's the first thing I usually cut is sort of these uh, products. But yeah, um, I would say Blue Apron and Birchbox are probably the two big ones because they've attracted the most funding. So obviously, those investors are going to want 
their uh, shirts. You right, know, right. And, and those are two big ones to watch for sure. And so let's rewind a bit because I want to, uh, I don't want to hop off the phone yet until we've talked about those lawsuits that you mentioned, because I think that is also a really key factor here when we're talking about Blue Apron. Right. Um, so Blue Apron um, has sort of dealt with a lot of these over the years, but they've been kind of um, very, you know, when it comes to, I think they have a New Jersey plant where there's a lot of problems and they sort of blame the, uh, this, quarters revenue on that uh, if you see the ceos uh i mean that was actually their uh, comment to me um and then actually this the day my story went up was when they did the hiring freeze so it's all it's also kind of like happening um so quickly that it's hard to keep up with but um yeah because they're dealing with that on their um investor end and then also dealing with this uh ipo which some would say it was probably um, ill-advised. It's uh, it's going to be kind of hard to get out of that, right. even with all of the funding that they have. Yeah, indeed. Well, it will be very interesting, and we will keep uh, an eye out for you on Bloomberg and, and other places, because you write all kind of places about all kind of things. Yeah. So, so we'll keep an eye out for you uh, and keep Thank turning you. to you for the rest uh, as the, and the latest as, as this continues to unfold. And we see what happens in this subscription box uh, space as kind of the novelty wears yeah. off a little bit. So all very interesting stuff. Gabriella Barco. Yeah, we'll see if they can sustain this. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Well, Gabriella, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks. Thanks. All right. We're going to take a little break and we come back. We're going to be talking. We're going to keep the food conversation going because we're going to talk a little bit about Whole Foods and Amazon and this deal that they've just made and how that might look in your grocery cart. Back in just a bit on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Hope you're enjoying some of that sunshine out on Michigan Avenue. Lots of people out and about today. As I like to say, get that sunshine now because you know your February self. Well, thank you for doing that. Well, thank you for absorbing it all. Okay, still lots to do on the program today. You know, the uh, the big merger acquisition that we talked about just a few weeks ago between Whole Foods and Amazon, it's on. We're going to start seeing the effects of that as early as Monday. And lots of people are talking about that big topic on social media today. Lots of people thinking about how that impacts them personally and their grocery carts. And so I uh, wanted to look through that a little bit. So they announced that uh, the grocery prices in particular would be slashed on Monday for a variety of Whole Foods best-selling items as part of this ac- uh, acquisition by Amazon. And in addition to that, if you are an Amazon Prime user, there's even further uh, perks that you're going to start being able to see. Uh, so this is going to be really interesting to watch this. And of course, we're going to keep you updated here on the program uh, about uh, just how this is going to shake out, because we're talking about two very, very big players in this space and how they're going to work together will be really, really interesting because, you know, Whole Foods has that nickname. Lots of people call it Whole Paycheck. Well, it may not be that for much longer, but this is not the first time they've tried to lower prices. So we're going to keep a close eye on that, and it's going to be really interesting. But here's 10 items um, that were cited in particular in the announcement uh, between Whole Foods and Amazon that will reflect lower prices that will be interesting. Uh, They are organic avocados, and I know 
avocados are always this weird litmus test. Everybody likes to tweet about avocados ever since there was the comment made at one point about avocado toast and millennial money habits. A lot of people start talking about avocados. We're going to let that go for a minute and just say, or apparently organic avocados are going to be on big sale starting Monday. Uh, Organic large brown eggs, organic responsibly farmed salmon and tilapia, organic bananas, organic baby kale and baby lettuce, uh, animal welfare rated 85% lean ground beef, almond butter, a couple different varieties of apples, rotisserie chicken, and then their 365 brand, their store brand, uh, their their brand of organic butter. So there's some staples that we're seeing there when we're talking about eggs and butter and things like that. So I think it's going to be really interesting, particularly around consumer attitudes, because I think there is this, uh, you know, Whole Foods has tried to to make themselves available in a lot of different areas to a lot of different groups of people. Uh, but nonetheless, it's been hard for them to shake that whole paycheck kind of uh, access, um, you know, reputation, if you will. Are you a Whole Foods shopper, Amy? What's that? Are you a Whole Foods shopper? Um, I don't have one near me. I have, I live near a Jewel and a Mariano's. Um, so if I'm just running out for something, I'm, I'm probably going to go there. But if I'm near one, there's some good stuff. And then there's one here near Tribune Tower that I go to plenty. How about you? Like, I wasn't, but then I started dating somebody who's like obsessed with Whole Foods. So <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of become addicted. You've become a Whole and Foods I was, shopper. Yeah, literally there last night and just like looking at these prices of these juices. And I was like... You know, it's like $10 for, you know, a nice kale juice or whatever. Right. My boyfriend was like, oh, but they're about to slash a bunch of prices. I don't know if that's on the list, though. Looks like it's mostly avocados and butter. It's mostly avocados and butter. Well, well, we're going to see. So um, I think the Amazon Prime part will be interesting, particularly Prime Now, which is the grocery delivery service. Um, I've tested that out a couple of times. Mostly, where, here's where it's really handy. I mean, most of the time, I'm like, oh, I feel, I feel like a bum getting that delivered to me because I am perfectly able to go out and buy groceries, you know, so I feel kind of guilty about that. But Um, I had a bad cold and it was winter and it was snowing really hard. And I thought, oh man, if I had a can of soup, that'd be real good. (laughs) And so I tried out uh, Amazon Prime now and it was, you know, it was handy. It was nice. Of course, you know, you got to tip the delivery person because they're out there in cruddy weather. Uh, But there's going to be through Amazon Prime now, you will be able to get, um, well, you can already get kind of this two-hour delivery window if you want it, if you don't order too late in the day. If you wait till like dinner time and you're like, give me that in two hours, probably not going to happen. But if you um, if you can order it in time. So we'll start to see the, the 365 brand, the store brand stuff, which I think will be really interesting. I bet people will go pretty, pretty rabid for that. I just don't know if, if they're actually, like, how much are we talking about dropping these prices? Because Whole Foods prices are already so much higher you know so are we right it, i don't i don't know yeah it'll be interesting i mean is it going to be um on par with your other supermarket chains or is it going to be a deal who knows i think that's gonna be interesting the other thing i think is really fascinating amazon lockers so that is if you don't have a secure location to receive an amazon package like if you don't have a lobby or if your front door is just sitting right there on the street in the city and someone would steal your packages or if you don't have a doorman or whatever um, you can have your items delivered to an amazon locker so now a lot of whole food stores are going to have amazon lockers in them which will be really interesting because then you can run in there to get your 
allegedly more affordable avocados and butter and eggs and also pick up your, you know, whatever stuff you ordered off of Amazon unrelated to groceries. So that's really interesting. It does feel a little bit a little brave new world and <laughs> not not big brothery right but it's it's like well wow, these are two very large corporations that now have a big big market share to be merged in this way so i think that'll be quite interesting to see all this play out but we're going to look for those uh those deals on monday and see what's what and of course we'll talk probably i'm sure be talking about that this time next week as we have seen kind of a week in we'll take a look back and see how it's gone with these this again these two giants in this space of amazon and whole foods coming together uh hopefully making our lives easier but we shall see all right we're going to take a break we're going to get you to news all that good stuff and then plenty more to talk about when we come back here on the Wintrust business lunch back in just a bit on 720 wgn Seven twenty WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Always grateful to you for sharing part of your Saturday with us. Still, lots to do on the program today. We are joined now by Ira Boudoué, who who is a writer at Bloomberg Business Week, who wrote a really really interesting story uh, recently about basketball stars after their NBA careers. How you know, the the path used to be going to coaching, going to broadcast, but there's this other avenue that has opened up, and that is investing in startups instead of these more traditional post-NBA career professional paths. So joining us to talk about that, Ira Boudoué. Hi, Ira. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us today. So talk us through this of when do we start to see the shift of, of NBA stars in particular uh, going into the startup space? It's been a few years uh, now. Uh, one of the leaders in this has been Andre Iguodala, who I write about in this story, a place for the Golden State Warriors, and he joined the Warriors in 2013, and that's when he got really serious. And he wasn't necessarily the first, but he's been one of the trailblazers and to do that. And what's interesting is it's not even guys are not necessarily even waiting until their careers are over. They're doing this in their off time, in their free time, while they're still playing. Uh, you know, they're starting to look at the tech scene, try to get hooked up with venture capitalists in Silicon Valley and try to find out which startups are, are you know, out fundraising and, and see if they can get a piece of this or that company in the hopes of, you know, this, the uh, crazy returns you can get if you get lucky. Sure, sure. Well, it's a, it seems like a smart move if you're, you know, making MBA kind of dollars. You might as well be doing something useful with it, right? And investing it wisely for, for your post-career because, you know, we've all seen really promising athletes. It just takes one little injury to really change their fate quite a bit. Um, and so is this, do you feel like this is sort of indicative of the entrepreneurial moment that we're in where we see people wearing a lot of different hats? Has this moved into athletes as well? Yeah, I mean, I think it is that there's a cultural trend. There's a real um, admiration for uh, Silicon Valley and startups, and it's a part of popular culture now. So players have caught this as well, and they see that the richest returns and the greatest kind of cachet comes with being an owner, having equity early on in companies that haven't even gone public yet. And so they want a piece of this too, and they have the the celebrity to get access to these deals. You know, if you talk to people in Silicon Valley, what you need if you want to be a venture capitalist is what they call deal flow. You need lots and lots of startups coming to you with good ideas early on so that you can invest in the best ones. And still, even if you're only investing in the best ones, most of them are going to fail. So you need lots and lots in order to get those few hits that pay for the rest. And and so the guys that are 
in Silicon Valley, in particular, the Golden State Warriors players have this access. Their owners, Joe Lacob is from uh, Kleiner Perkins, which is a big venture capital fund, and there a lot of the other minority owners of the team come from Silicon Valley, and so they have this great access to the people and networks that kind of uh, manage the flow of money out there, and they can get in on it. Right. And so as, you know, such a big part of being a professional athlete is those sponsor deals with big brands. Are we seeing any of that shift along with this as as perhaps business relationships are getting a little more complicated, even for the better? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there have been a couple of big moments in marketing where uh People where a celebrity got equity instead of cash, and a lot of people heard about it and thought, I want to do that too. One was 50 Cent with Vitamin Water, the the rapper. He made a lot of money. Wall Street Journal said $100 million. I don't think it was that much, but no one knows for sure outside of the parties involved. But, but he made a lot of money when Vitamin Water sold to Coca-Cola. And uh, LeBron James had a deal with Beats by Dre uh, where he had equity, and he made a lot of money, uh, reportedly $30 million, when that sold to Apple. And so athletes see this and they go, well, I want some of that, too. And so they do. There has been a trend to come to startups and, and brands and say, I want equity instead of cash. And then that didn't always work so well in Silicon Valley, actually, because the companies that are raising money out there, uh, they need their cash for their operations. And also, most of the time, they're not really selling sort of a, a product that needs advertising initially. That's not how it works. They're not trying to differentiate their soda from somebody else's soda. They're trying to invent a whole new way to do whatever, whether it's ride sharing or you name it. So so what the athletes I spoke to and the venture capitalists I spoke to said, you know, there, there you can get equity, uh, you know, for your celebrity, but you really kind of need to come and put some money down and have some skin in the game. And then maybe on top of that, you can do what's called like an ambassador deal and get some equity for that. But certainly the conversations around what athletes want when they approach a company now, a lot of the time companies of all stripes, public, private, are having to at least – field the question of, can I get a piece of the company in return for my participation? It's also kind of an interesting um, an interesting moment because we've talked a lot on this program about uh, demographic information, uh, particularly as venture capital companies uh, in Silicon Valley, you know, were releasing demographic information, and it was all quite homogenous. Um, this seems to be shifting that a little bit, or at least giving the opportunity to shift that a little bit as we're seeing uh, players from a lot of different backgrounds, not just the same kind of person over and over again investing in these startups. Yeah, I mean, I think honestly that's part of the attraction for startups is, you know, most players in the NBA are black and you don't see a lot of black people, unfortunately, amongst uh, startup founders and venture capitalists. And so this is one very simple way to sort of increase those numbers and bring start to bring that community in. Um, so, I think that's part of the attraction. There's also just the fact that especially these Warriors players in Silicon Valley, they are rock stars there. And I don't know that venture capitalists are always the most celebrity-obsessed people, but this team they love. And so Andre Iguodala, you know, he works closely with um, Andreessen Horowitz, the venture capital fund out there. And uh, one of their partners, Jeff Jordan, who works with, with Iguodala, said, you know, no one's ever turned down a meeting. No startup that he's ever said, hey, would you like to, Andre Iguodala wants to meet with you, would you like to do it? The answer is never no, and and that's because of, of who he is. So they have a special position out there, and, and yeah, hopefully it will start to broaden the profile. And in some cases, you do see that the companies that they invest in are ones for which they uh, uh, sort of fit the profile for the customer or match the management in some way. There's a company called Walker and Company that is out in, in Palo Alto, and they're working on healthcare and beauty products and shaving products for people of color. 
and Andre Iguodala is an investor in that. It's founded by Tristan Walker, who's also an African-American. There's another company that's trying to change the way hair extensions are sold to salons. And um, that company, Iguodala is an investor, and it's called Maven. So they're also sort of getting hooked up with minority-owned companies in some cases and helping to just build the the sort of uh, you know network that's out there in Silicon Valley. It's really interesting. I think this is a really, really interesting shift. And one in which, you know, we haven't generally seen um, a lot of, you know, we don't think of sports as going after like necessarily, uh, we don't see the merge between intellectual pursuits and business pursuits so much with sports. We usually see someone like in sports stay in sports for better or worse, you know. And so I think this is a really interesting uh opportunity for sports players to, you know, flex another set of skills and use, uh, you know, intellectual and economic kind of muscles there. I think that's really, really interesting. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how this continues as we see Golden State Warriors in that space, investing in stuff. It's it's a cool moment. Yeah, I think it's really cool. And you're right. These players want you to know that they are curious about the world outside of their game, at least some of them, and that they have ambitions and interests. They're people and that they want to be plugged into these worlds and that they can participate them in them on equal footing. You know, while while they're playing, they need help. They have to have guys. What I write about this guy, Rudy Klein Thomas, who's basically Andre Iguodala's right hand man in Silicon Valley. On a day-to-day level, Iguodala's got to be training and playing, so he can't be going to every meeting and, and reading every email, but he wants to be involved. He, he goes to pitch meetings. He just makes decisions about what to invest in. He gets the email from the founders when something goes wrong or is going well, and, and he wants to be in on this, uh, you know, and he reads vociferously in the financial press. Like, the, this is a different kind of, uh, you know, profile than we've seen, but it's, he's not alone. There are a lot of athletes now who look at it this way, and they've really been – I think LeBron James has been sort of at the front of this, and James in turn has been watching what Michael Jordan did going from a player to an owner uh, in the NBA. And there's a new pathway now where guys want to sort of broaden their horizons and, and get in on opportunities that are outside of the game. Right, right. A much more accurate picture of a well-rounded and fully, uh, you know, fully dimensional human being that we've, you know, we right. wa- we watch on the courts. And it's uh, it's cool to learn these other sides of our sports players. Well, thanks so much, Ira Boudouet, for being with us. We will keep turning to you at Bloomberg for more on this and other topics. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Always happy to do it. Thanks. All right. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we are talking with Alexia Elahalde Ruiz from Chicago Tribune about a really interesting issue surrounding farming and labor right here in Illinois. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks for being with us today. Coming up after the 1 o'clock news break, we're going to be turning things over to Scott Katoon for the Startup Showcase. I'm sure he's got lots of interesting, smart people lined up for you to hear from today, as ever. Uh, but before that, we still have plenty to do. Regular contributor to this program, Alexia Elahalde Ruiz from the Chicago Tribune, joins us by phone to talk about a recent story that she wrote that is really interesting, taking a look at Illinois farms, where labor is is kind of tight right now, how um, how that worker demographic profile might be shifting a little bit and how maybe different groups of workers are working on Illinois farms. Hi, Alexia. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So talk us through this. What are we seeing happening right now on Illinois farms, particularly around labor? 
So um, traditionally, farms relied a lot on migrant workers to come um, and pull in the harvest. So those are seasonal jobs. They just need them for a few months, and they're difficult, you know, jobs often in, in very, you know, kind of hot weather. Um, and there were, you know, people who would kind of go through the country and, you know, go to different parts of the country as the seasons, um, as the crops, you know, were ready um, to harvest. And that has um, – that labor pool has dropped off as people um, have kind of settled down and, you know, to give their kids more stability and um, have just become more permanent, you know, fixtures in their communities. And so after that, people relied more and more on um, Mexican workers, um, a lot of people, a lot of them undocumented who are crossing over the border. But those labor pools also have shrunk as fewer people cross the border, as conditions in Mexico have improved. Um, and it's kind of been happening since um, the recession reduced demand um, in the first place. And so farms have found themselves struggling to find um, workers, the um, seasonal workers for their harvest. And so increasingly now they are using this um, program from the government, uh, temporary worker visas that's been around for since the 1950s, but just has not been used very much because it's kind of a pain in the butt, um, according to farmers. Um, but they're increasingly using these just to, to supplement their workforces. And so that is all sitting around the H-2A visa, but there's an H-2A, an H-2B, and a C. There's, a, there's some variation here with the H-2 visa programs. Yeah, there's an alphabet soup, as they say, of the of temporary visas. So the agriculture visas are H-2A. So that's specifically for agricultural workers um, and for seasonal workers. So it has to be for less than a year. Okay. And so it's all kind of centering around, centering around that visa program. So what is it that makes that particular visa difficult for farmers? So they say it's just just the paperwork is a pain. Um, it's kind of antiquated. It's not they have to um, so the filing is a pain, and then they have to uh, sorry a list um, an advertisement in the newspapers for a while to look for um, for labor. And so they just say it takes a long time, and it's difficult for their line of work because it's not like the fruit can be just picked, you know, a couple of days from now. Like they kind of need their workers when they need them. Um, so they so they worry about. Just the, the delays that can happen, and also it can be costly. Um, there's something called the adverse wage rate that the um, and that employers have to pay workers who come in on H-2As, and that is calculated by the government. And um, it's a wage that basically they have determined um, won't adversely affect American workers. And in Illinois, it's thirteen dollars, thirteen oh one, exactly. Um, for this year, and so there, it's not so that's not low. So and and also employers have to pay for workers um, to travel to um, their farms and also for their housing. So ultimately, it can be a costly program that is also um, frustrating. Indeed, and so um, who we you know we're looking at at this, and and there's a lot of pieces to it, and anything involving a visa is never simple. Nothing involving labor is ever simple. When we start looking to labor advocacy groups, there's a little bit of bristling here. Talk us through that part. Yeah, so. Labor advocacy groups have always been kind of skeptical of these guest worker programs because they they think that they can set workers up to be exploited, um, specifically because they're tied to this employer. So, so they're brought here by this employer. They have to work there. And so if anything goes wrong, if they're treated poorly, if the conditions are bad, if things are unsafe, if they complain, then they might worry that they'll be sent back. 
um, because they don't have an option to just leave and go do something else. And so, and also there's a concern that there are brokers in Mexico who recruit the workers and kind of take money under the table to, um, to you know, to secure them a visa. And then the, the workers are kind of indebted to um, those brokers. And so it's almost like a form of indentured servitude. So there's just concerns that, there's a, that, that it sets people up um, to be abused. Um, yeah, so, so they don't want so, – so while the farm kind of lobby is saying that they need reform of the H-2A program, I don't think anybody disagrees that it needs to be reformed, and they, but they say they want to make it easier for them to bring people in. The labor advocacy groups are saying, you know, there need to be a lot more labor protections to make sure that people are treated fairly. And that's where the alphabet soup of these visas come in, because we have uh, a bill slated to be introduced that perhaps some farmers are, are, are at least curious about, that it seems like it might be streamlining a little of this, or, or perhaps just giving some other options to both workers and farmers. Right. So um, there have been quite a few bills introduced already to reform the H-2A program. But after the August recess, um, Senator Goodlot from Virginia is supposed to... Um, Representative Goodlock, excuse me, is supposed to introduce a bill uh, for the H2C program to replace the H2A program, just to add another another um, letter here to the visa program. And it would um, basically replace it, and it would allow for year-round visas. Um, and importantly, what it would do is, be, um, is that people who are currently in the U.S. illegally could apply. And so that would address one concern that a lot of labor advocates have, which is like, what about all the people who are already here working? Because about half, I think more than, no, just under half of the um, people working on farms right now are undocumented. And so it's, it's a huge amount. And so a lot of the existing um, proposals to reform the H-2A program don't really address that issue, but this H-2C program would because those people could apply. Of course, then they would, they would only be on temporary visas, so they'd have, to kind of, they'd have to leave the country after, I think, it's eight months, eight, sorry, 18 months of the proposal. So you could do a seasonal um, visa for a maximum of 18 months, and you have to leave and get another visa to come back. Um, but they also are, are advocating for, or sorry, the bill would also include a provision for a year-round visa for um, for things like dairy farms, which need your, your workers year-round. And, th- and that's controversial because people are like, if it's a year-round job and you really don't need to import labor, like you can make those jobs better and Americans should be you know, willing to do those jobs if the conditions are right. Right, right. And, and meanwhile, then we have uh, groups looking at options for like blue cards that would be kind of a path to green cards. Uh, that That's another kind of interesting piece of this too. Yeah, right. The Democrats are introducing this, this blue card proposal, um, which would give p- worker existing agriculture workers who are already here illegally. It would it basically says if they've been working in agriculture for the past two years, they can apply for these blue cards, and if they continue to work in agriculture for like three to five years, then they could uh, apply for a green card. So it gives a path to legalization. For, for existing agriculture workers. Right, right. And so as you were working on this story, which everybody head to chicagotribune.com to read this story. It is really interesting. It's a great long read with a lot of interesting details and several rabbit holes that you will go down as you're reading it. Um, but what, what was surprising to you? Maybe something that challenged what we think about farm labor or something like that. But what surprised you when you were working on this story? Well, so I had the great fortune of being to tra- being able to travel all the way to southern, way southern Illinois, to this peach farm, Rendleman Farms, um, to to report this story. A photographer and I went, and 
I don't know if it was necessarily surprising, but the farm owners were adamant, like that there is no other option. Like they are not able to find um, to find labor outside of uh, outside of kind of you know the Mexican workers that they have relied on for for a long time, and and that's you know you always kind of wonder like really like are you sure that you that there's not you know there's there's high unemployment in this part of the state you know are you sure there's nobody willing and so i was i guess i was surprised by how like it was not even a question in their head like it was like no we have tried we have tried like everything to to get people to work for us and it's just not there um what else did I find surprising? I don't know. I mean, it was, it's beautiful. <laughs> it was just a, kind of a bucolic setting. That was another thing that was kind of interesting, that there is a peach farm that exists, first of all, in southern Illinois. Um, and it's in this, like, lovely kind of, like, part of the state that, that at least I had never been part of. And then the workers there, um, I don't know. Like, it was, I guess, I don't, it's not that surprising because I don't know what I was expecting. Um, but everyone seemed, you know, it was it was just a, it was just a fun. There was nothing, you know, really out of out of the ordinary, I suppose. But like every single person who worked there, um, like I would say, ninety nine percent of the pers- people who worked there are Mexican, mm-hmm. except yeah. for the farm owners. Right, right. Well, very interesting story. Again, everybody, head to chicagotribune.com and read this wonderful long read all about Illinois farm and labor issues happening right here, right here in our home state. So thanks so much, Alexia Ella Holiday Ruiz, for being with us today. Thank you, Amy. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time.